0: Well, five weeks ago, I asked a question and I left us with some spiritual homework. The question was As a Christian, to what degree should you adapt to the beliefs and to the practices of the culture of those who do not know Christ, your family, your neighbors, your work colleagues, in order to reach them for the gospel? How far should you go? How much can you flex? What sets the limits? What we saw is that within the realm of a rightly calibrated conscience, there is room for faithfulness and flexibility on this matter. Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. And in third level matters, matters of relative indifference, matters that are morally neutral, this is uh, the course that mature Christians will seek to follow, to become all things to all people, so that by all possible means we might save some. But there are scenarios when we can't bend. Situations in which Christians must never flex, even if our motive for wanting to do so is the salvation of someone we love. Rather, we must obey God. Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 21, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Which means this principle, to become all things to all people, so that by all possible means we might save some, must never become a license for sin or or for evil. Certain things, Christian, are forbidden to us. And of course, the Bible has much to say about the consistent obedient faithful lifestyles of christians and the sanctifying and even the saving influence that can that can have on unbelievers and yes judgment too uh, so it's never a simple matter of of bend or nothing flex or god's purposes are thwarted never also In this matter of becoming all things to all people, so that by all possible means we might save some, as we live this out, we must also be aware of the unbeliever's conscience. The unbeliever may assume incorrectly, all right, incorrectly, that for us to participate in such and such an activity would be a violation of our Christian principles. And so, for the sake of their weak conscience, we refrain. Even though we have every right to participate. New City, this means that the mature Christian, for the mature Christian, life is is a balancing act. Uh, For the sake of others, we're bending, we're flexing, that we may win some for the gospel. Yet, we're living in obedience to God on every front lest we be disqualified in the end, lest we not receive the prize. We are people who flee idolatry. And in our passage today, Paul presents three situations in which the Corinthians need to work out this tension. Situation number one, a Christian is invited to a pagan temple for a dinner party uh, where they will be offered meat that was sacrificed to an idol earlier that morning. Should the Christian go to the temple in the first place? May they eat that sacrificed meat? What needs to be informing their decision? Situation number two. The Corinthian Christian is invited to someone's house for a private meal, and the host serves food they bought in the marketplace. The host doesn't mention it, but the Christian knows it for a fact. This meat has been sacrificed to an idol. Does the Christian eat the food the host has provided or not? What needs to be informing their decision? Situation number three. The Christian guest at this private meal has no scruples of conscience whatsoever about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And just as she gets ready to dig into a big juicy steak, someone seated next to her leans over and says, Don't eat it. It's been sacrificed. What does she do? What needs to be informing her decision? I also gave three modern-day examples, and I deliberately kept things in the spiritual religious realm, in the realm of potential idolatry. So even though uh, they're contemporary, the principles for working them out are all found in 1 Corinthians chapters 8-10. through 10. This biblical instruction, brothers and sisters, transcends culture. Example number one, a Roman Catholic relative... I said your sister, to keep things interesting, to elevate the drama, invites you, a Protestant and a committed Baptist to boot, to her baby's baptism at her local Catholic church. Do we go? How much can we flex? What sets the limits? What should be informing our decision? Example number two we're a Chinese believer, or we're married into a Chinese family. What do we do about Qingmin? tomb-sweeping day, which is primarily a day to remember, pray for, and offer sacrifices to the dead. Do we go? How much can we flex? What sets the limits? What should be informing our decision? The third example I mentioned we'll consider at our member meeting next week. There are several complicating factors that require special attention. We just don't have time to get into it today. Our sermon title, you can see this in your bulletin, is Christian, do all strategically for God's glory by seeking your neighbor's good. And so we begin with verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, therefore, and and that therefore, of course, it's looking back to last week's text that recalls the behavior of idolatrous Israel. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The Corinthians must flee idolatry lest they fall, lest they be disqualified, just as the Israelites in the wilderness failed to enter into the promised land because of their idolatry. And with this verse, Paul returns to the big problem, chapters 8 through 10 address. We've been calling it problem number six, eating food offered to idols. However... And this is very important. This is essential to recognize. Verses 14 to 22 differ from chapter 8 as a whole and also the rest of chapter 10, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. You'll recall that in chapter 8, Paul addresses the matter of eating meat sacrificed to idols. As a matter of conscience, that was subjective idolatry, meaning a Christian with a weak conscience believed it was wrong to eat sacrificed meat in the pagan temple, in the pagan restaurant, even though they had the right to do so. They were theologically misinformed. But here, in these nine verses now, Paul addresses the issue with reference to worshiping idols. This is now objective idolatry. Christians may disagree on matters of conscience, but not about worshipping idols. There's no bending for Christians on this front. There's no flexing. There's no, I have become all things to all people in verses 14 through 22. All right, so be very aware of that. If this sort of sin is persisted in, it leads to apostasy. We saw that last week. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Now, from many commentators I've read, that word participation should be rendered a slightly different way. It's not that we somehow participate in Christ's blood by drinking the cup during the Lord's Supper. It's not that we somehow ingest Christ or ingest Christ's blood and so somehow participate in him. That's simply not what the Greek text says. In the New Testament, the word there behind participation is almost always translated Fellowship. It's koinonia. That's one of those Greek words we actually, probably most of us have heard of before. Koinonia. It means fellowship. That's what's at stake here. A a better reading, I think, is this Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a fellowship of the blood of Christ? That is, is not the cup an expression of our oneness? As a fellowship, a fellowship of the blood of Christ. Do You see, it's not that we participate in the blood. The cup is a fellowship of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not the bread that we break, a fellowship in the body of Christ. So when we take the bread in the Lord's Supper, we're saying that we all belong to one body. Just as the bread itself all came from one loaf, we're all one. Verse 17, because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body. For we all share the one loaf. So, yes, the Lord's Supper, it reminds us of Jesus' body, broken on the cross for sinners. That's appropriate. That's good. But the language of the New Testament goes further and sometimes speaks of Jesus' body as the church. And then a further connection is being made here. If the body of Christ is symbolized in the bread of the Lord's Supper, and the church is the body of Christ, then there is some connection, symbolically at least, between the bread of the Lord's Supper and the church. Vertical fellowship with Jesus creates horizontal fellowship with Christ's body, the church. And so the church has a, as a unified whole. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together, right? Low status people and the social elite, young, old, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. There should be no factions. So Paul brings this up again, and then in chapter 11, because there are deep factions in Corinth. There should be no factions, because we're a fellowship of the Lord's table, new city. We're a fellowship of the Lord's blood. We're a fellowship of the Lord's body. The cup of thanksgiving, the bread, the rite itself of the Lord's Supper, it signals, it circumscribes, it constitutes a fellowship of Christ. A fellowship of the blood of Christ, a fellowship of the body of Christ. And so the very nature of that ordinance precludes the possibility of Christians also being in fellowship with demons. God forbid. When when pagans sacrificed food to their gods, to demons, actually, Paul says, they celebrated with those demons what they thought the sacrifice accomplished. And the blessings that flowed from it Similarly, when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, it's a covenant renewal ceremony, isn't it? We're exalting in what Jesus has accomplished for his people through his death and and the blessings that ensue. Just as when the people of Israel ate the Passover meal, they celebrated what God had accomplished for them through the Passover sacrifice. and And the blessings that flowed from that. All this to say, don't the Corinthian Christians understand what they're doing when they participate in these pagan ceremonies, it's a fellowship of the demonic. Paul's aghast. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Which doesn't mean that they ingest the altar. The point is that it's a fellowship of the altar. They constitute a people circumscribed by their participation in the altar. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, verse 19, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. So it's not a morally neutral act, right? It's idolatry. It's not just a matter of conscience. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So... Since eating and drinking in a religious ceremony is participating in that ceremony, and since it constitutes a people circumscribed by their participation in the ceremony, then eating food offered to idols in their religious ceremonies is participating in demonic activity. That's what Paul is saying. Participating in a pagan religious ceremony is not a disputable third level issue for christians it's idolatry verse 21 you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons too you cannot have a part in both the lord's table and the table of demons are we trying to arouse the lord's jealousy are we stronger than he god forbid idolatry arouses The Lord's wrathful jealousy. There's all kinds of texts that speak to that. So Paul concludes this issue now by exhorting the Corinthians to do all strategically for God's glory by seeking their neighbor's good. So, verses 14 through 22 is now complete. What follows is no longer concerned with a Christian's fellowship in the demonic. We're back to eating sacrificed meat, which Paul has already told us is a morally neutral practice in chapter 8. So, new topic, right? We're back into the realm of subjective idolatry. Verse 23, a Corinthian slogan, I have the right to do anything, you say. And then Paul refutes that but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others, because that's beneficial. That's constructive to seek the good of others. Christians must be willing to give up their rights in order to benefit our Christian or non-Christian neighbors. We must seek to build others up in whatever we do. Verse 24, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. And to help apply that principle, Paul addresses three specific situations regarding sacrificed meat. Situation number one, some Corinthians aren't sure if they can eat the sacrificed meat sold in the marketplace without sinning. And Paul says, yes, you're free to eat that meat. Look at verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. And the reason why this is an issue is because after sacrificing animals to their idols, pagans would eat some of the remaining meat in the idol's temple and then sell the rest to vendors. And those vendors, in turn, would sell it in the meat market. So Paul says, don't worry about it. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. It doesn't matter if it's been offered to an idol or not. And then the apostle supports this assertion, By by quoting Psalm 24, verse 1, which Jews traditionally prayed before eating. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including that sacrificed meat. That's the argument. So, done and dusted. Situation number two. A pagan purchases meat offered to idols in the meat market and then invites a Christian over for a meal. Verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. There is no need to make inquiries about whether the meat was sacrificed to idols or not. Verse 28, but situation number three, if someone informs a Christian that the meat was sacrificed to idols, thus implying that they think the Christian will object to eating the meat, because it would involve participation in idolatry, in idol worship, the Christian must decline to eat the meat for the sake of that person's misinformed conscience. There there is a nugget of Christian maturity right there. Verse 28, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. So in the first two situations, Paul essentially says, don't bother asking if the meat was sacrificed. It's a theologically moot point. Your correctly calibrated conscience shouldn't condemn you for it. But this third situation offers an exception uh, to the second situation. And commentators say verses 28 and 29 should really be put into, a, into parentheses. Verses 28, uh, verse 28, someone, probably refers to an unbeliever, since it's, an, accept, it's an, uh, an exception to verse 27, which involves an unbeliever. This person, this unbeliever, doesn't understand the theological rationale why it's acceptable for the believer to eat the sacrificed meat. And so their misinformed conscience assumes the Christian eats the meat and is tacitly worshiping idols. That's what they're thinking is going on. As one commentator writes, this is very important to understand, the food's history matters only when it matters to someone else who considers it sacred. Christians know that idols do not exist, that there is no God but one, and that all food ultimately belongs to God. In this sticky situation, however, it's not what the Christian knows that counts, but what others believe. So important. So important. It's not what the Christian knows that counts, but what others believe. Because if it's what we know that counts, and it's like, I have the right. I have the right to do anything. Paul says that's not the case. It's not what you know. It's what the other person thinks. Now we come to two more rhetorical questions. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. Why should someone else's misinformed conscience limit what I am free to do? If I can thank God for the meat, then I'm, Should I not be free to eat it? Yes. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. New City, we glorify God when we feel and think and act in a way that makes much of God in ways that show that he is supremely good and great and all satisfying. And in the literary context... The specific way to make much of God, to bring glory to God, is to seek our neighbor's good above our own. Lay down your rights. Verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as you try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I followed the example of Christ. Because Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of giving up one's rights for the sake of others, right? Uh, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to exploit to his own advantage, Philippians 2, rather he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's our ultimate model, brothers and sisters. All right. That's the text. We now know what God's word says and what it meant to the people of God at the time it was written and how they were to put it in practice in first century Corinth. What's God's word saying to us? If we're hearing eating meat, sacrificed to idols, like that has nothing to do with my life. I want us to take everything that we've learned and apply it now to the two modern day scenarios I mentioned earlier our attendance at a Roman Catholic baptism and tomb sweeping day. And obviously, those two examples aren't the only two that apply. The, the, the principles of this text are far, far ranging. But first, I'll recap. If you look at your bulletin, look at your handout, Just I want you to keep these uh, two modern-day examples in mind as we read through this. All right. Look at what it says. Paul prohibits the Corinthian Christians from eating meat sacrificed to idols in three contexts, but he allows it in two. Yes, number one. You have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple when it's not part of the pagan religious ritual. Chapter 8. No, number 2. Give up your right to eat meat sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple if it would harm a fellow Christian. Chapter 8. Number 3. No, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple ...as part of the pagan religious ritual... ...for to do so would be to participate in demon worship. Verses 14 through 22. Number four, yes, you have the right to eat meat... ...sacrifice the idols that you buy in the meat market... ...and eat in your home or in the home of your neighbors. Number five, no, give up your right to eat meat... ...sacrifice the idols in another person's home... If a person informs you that the meat was sacrificed to idols and thus implies that they think you, as a Christian, would object to eating the meat because that would be participating in idol worship. Those are our principles. Those are the biblical principles. It applies to a lot of parts of our life. Now, let me just qualify everything I'm about to say. Different members of this church will come to different conclusions regarding both of these scenarios I'm going to present now all right I'm giving you a rundown of my thoughts on this how I'm theologically and practically and I hope prudentially <laughs> approaching these issues but you may differ from me you may come to different conclusions and that's okay that doesn't make you a bad christian or me a great christian it's not sin to disagree with your pastor on this within certain limits we will deal first with attending a Roman Catholic baptism and then tomb-sweeping day. I believe both these issues, both these scenarios, are conscience issues if we do our due diligence first, if we do all we can to correctly calibrate our conscience, and if we honestly work through the biblical categories and so keep to the straight path. If we don't do these things, then it's not a matter, in either situation, of different strokes for different folks. Not for the mature, responsible Christian who wants to live by what the Word of God says. It's not just a matter of, I don't feel guilty about it. My conscience is clear, therefore it's fine to do it. There's no need to consult the Bible, or listen to what John's preaching right now. No, it's a matter of taking Uh, Nor is it a matter of taking the general principle of our sermon title today, do all strategically for God's glory by seeking your neighbor's good and absolutizing the strategic part. Absolutizing the seek your neighbor's good part while paying short shrift to the for God's glory part. Christian, you may very well need to add... To your conscience from the Word of God on these issues, uh, Paul does not write. To the adulterer, I became like an adulterer; to the thief, I became like a thief; to the pagan idolater, I became like a pagan idolater. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. There are limits, and sometimes we need to calibrate our conscience by adding commands to it. Something's missing that ought to be there. Our conscience is malfunctioning because we've deeply absorbed the sinful worldview of this age, or we don't want to upset our family. We prioritize familial harmony over being faithful. We fear man rather than God. Or, we may need to subtract unnecessary rules from our conscience. I was talking to someone recently who went beyond what the Bible taught concerning a certain matter. They were stricter. They had more rules than either Jesus or the Apostle Paul. And they were fine with that. Beloved, it's not a sign of spiritual maturity or holiness to go beyond what the Scriptures teach. So, Modern-day example number one. A Roman Catholic relative, your sister, she invites you, a Protestant and a committed Baptist, to her baby's baptism at her local Catholic church. The dilemma, of course, is that in the false, unbiblical Roman Catholic tradition, the act of baptism itself regenerates the infant being baptized They move from spiritual death to life, even apart from faith in Jesus. In Latin, that's called ex opere operato, by the work performed and is necessary for salvation. It's a total denial of the gospel. The act of baptism removes the person's original sin, makes them spiritually alive by the infusion of grace that begins the transforming process of making a person righteous. In this view, Christ has given authority to the church and her officers to effect saving grace in people through the administration of the sacraments, beginning in baptism and culminating in extreme unction. So, do we go to the baptism or not? How much can we flex? What sets the limits? What needs to be informing our decision? Speaking for myself and following what Paul has laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, as long as certain preconditions were met, I would go. I would bend. I would flex. I would attend the ceremony. Now, you may disagree with that final decision, but what we can agree on Is the biblical process, the due diligence we need to be following? Look at your handout. I have questions to consider. Questions for the Christian to consider. And the first question you see there is sort of the general heading for all that follows Does my correctly calibrated conscience permit my presence? Does it permit my participation? And following our Corinthians text, I believe those are two different things. I would make a distinction between presence and participation. Do I have the right to be present? May I bend or flex? I must not violate my conscience, nor the word of God. And on this matter of a Catholic baptism, friend, you you may believe, yes, my conscience is correctly calibrated I know the theology of Rome and I know what the Bible teaches about justification and I can have no part in this as much as I love my biological sister I believe this baptism is an attack on the finished work of Jesus Christ I have and I will continue to evangelize my sister nine ways from Sunday but this I cannot do if that's you brother or sister That is fine. And and no member of this church can look down on you for such a stance. We all do what we do for God's glory before our own master. We stand or fall. But other Christians in this church might adopt a different approach. Now, I don't think I would announce it from the rooftops that I was attending the baptism. Because I know the sensitivities of some of my brothers and sisters on this matter. Uh, What did we just read? Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as you try to please everyone in every way. But my conscience would permit my presence, but not my participation. I wouldn't stand at the baptismal font with the parents and promise to be the child's godparent, for instance. To rear them in good Roman Catholic doctrine and practice, and I trust you wouldn't either. Nor would I participate in the Mass that followed as Christ's sacrifice is represented to the Father, and I trust you wouldn't either. But if certain preconditions were met, which I'll get to in a minute, I wouldn't be violating my conscience to be present on this most important day for my sister just as I have no issue attending a Roman Catholic funeral. Would you attend a Roman Catholic funeral? Of course, there are parts of a Catholic funeral service in which evangelicals must not participate. For instance, when they stand and pray to Mary, we would remain seated and we would not pray, right? I think that's fine. And I have no problem attending, celebrating even, a Catholic wedding, a Buddhist wedding, a Hindu wedding, a Muslim wedding. If anybody on the planet should be celebrating the goodness, the rightness, the blessing of marriage, it's Christians. I I hope my unbelieving friends would invite me. Just as I have no problem attending a Catholic funeral, a Buddhist funeral, a Hindu funeral, a Muslim funeral although there may be elements in all those services that uh, I could not participate in. I would do my research ahead of time, find out what those things are, and act accordingly. Next question. What is the nature of the act? According to Rome, and these are all direct quotes from the official 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church, born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have need of new birth. In baptism, to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God, to which all men are called. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as our punishment for sins. Baptism not only purifies us from all sin, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God, who has become a partaker of the divine nature, member of Christ, and co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. All that is false. But for the Catholic theological Jedi, all right, who has knowledge of Roman's traditions, they understand Rome's teachings, that's what they believe is happening. But how does my neighbor view the act? How does my sister view the act, right? And that is a very, very important question to ask considering 1 Corinthians. I hope this doesn't sound insufferably condescending, and to be fair... The majority, I would say, of Protestants don't have a clue about the biblical teaching. But as far as baptism is concerned, in my experience, Catholics don't understand what Rome teaches on the subject. I would say also, Protestants, many many Protestants don't understand also what the Bible teaches on the subject. More often than not, for Roman Catholics, it's viewed as a superstitious, cultural, family tradition with comforting religious overtones. That's been my experience. At at the very most, the parents are thinking, if the baby dies, it'll go to heaven. Next question. How is it beneficial? How is it constructive to them that I am present or participating? What is my motivation in being there? Is it be all things to all people that you may win some for the gospel? Is it that I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of others, particularly their eternal good? Am I doing all strategically for God's glory? Or am I compromising my Christian beliefs? Is my conscience howling? Am I there only because my sister would have a fit? If I didn't come. It's part of my familial obligation. So I'm attending out of duty. Without giving sufficient consideration. To the false damning. Beliefs of my family. I mentioned preconditions. Here are my preconditions. And this is going to sound a bit heavy handed. Because it assumes I've never talked to my sister. About the gospel before. So I have to dump it on her all in one shot on the eve of her baby's baptism, which just wouldn't be the case. Uh, to, a word to the wise, Christian, don't wait, don't delay talking to your loved ones about the gospel so that the first time that you do proclaim Christ on an occasion like this, don't, don't, do it, don't make this the first time, right? Tensions are high and, and much, much is at stake. Use your sanctified common sense. I would tell my sister kindly and without a whiff of spiritual condescension that I don't believe the teachings of Rome. It's not what the Bible teaches, and the Bible is authoritative on this. Then I would proclaim to her the biblical truth, counterposing it with what Rome teaches. That might, that might take two minutes. It might be a two-hour conversation, depending on how things go. But in all of this, I'd be seeking to point my sister to the finished work of Jesus and the authority of Holy Scripture. And I would make it perfectly clear to my sister that I wouldn't see myself in any way participating in or endorsing this sacrament. And I would explain my own motivations in attending. So she doesn't think I'm in any way playing fast and loose with what Protestant Christians believe the Bible teaches. And then I might give the big picture storybook Bible as a baptism present or, and, and something else, too. Something really nice. I think this is important. Something really nice, like I'm, like I'm Don Corleone or something, right? Um, truly, I would give the best baptismal present of anybody in my family to show my sister that I love her that I respect her, and that I love my little niece or my little nephew. Am I participating in a sinful act? Next question. No, I'm not participating in the Mass. I'm not praying to Mary. I'm not consenting to be a godparent. I don't believe any of it, and I've told my family so. I'm there because I love my sister, and I love my niece or nephew, and I want them both to know Jesus. That's why I'm there. Am I aware of the unbeliever's conscience? Do they believe that, I, that by my participating or being present, I'm doing something unchristian or unbiblical? No. I've made that plain to them. They know where I stand. And by doing all of this, by bending and by flexing as much as God's word allows, but all the while explaining things, right? In love and being aware of the other person's misinformed conscience. I keep those channels of relationship open with my family. That's how I would respond to this, to that first scenario. We'll have time for Q&A. You can ask more about that later on. All right, our second modern-day example, Qingming or Tomb Sweeping Day. This is a festival with roots in ancestor worship and traditional Chinese religion. On tomb-sweeping day, Chinese families travel to grave sites of deceased loved ones and clean the tombstones. Observances often include praying for or to the departed, sharing a family meal near the grave, and burning paper effigies that represent afterlife necessities such as houses, food, and money. It's believed by many that the deceased need living family to provide for them, even after they're gone, And effigies are the keys that provide those amenities on the other side. Food is laid out in front of the headstone as an offering to the spirits of the deceased. Each family member comes in front of the headstone and bows three times with their right fist cupped in their left hand or or like this. Uh, Some families will then eat the food at the gravesite, akin to having a, a family picnic with the deceased relatives. It's said to bring good luck, to eat the food that was offered to the deceased. Some families may also set off firecrackers to scare off evil spirits and to alert the deceased relatives that they are there to pay their respects. Now, while some families don't make a big deal out of Qingming, for many, many, this is a serious issue. Participation is an expression of familial love and hospitality in a culture saturated with such values it's an affirmation to the older generation that the younger will care for them after they're gone it's a reminder that everyone in the family is still part of the group and still cherishes their ancestors so for a good son or daughter to go off to university become a Christian, and then return only to balk at the expected rituals there can be serious consequences many chinese believers find themselves in a difficult place some will keep the peace and show love by going to the gravesite, but not participating in the activities. Some will take a stronger stance against any attendance whatsoever. Some won't think twice and participate in everything. And some will participate either in part or in whole, but they will do so against their conscience. So, having read 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, do we go or not? How much can we flex? What sets the limits? What should be informing our decision? Speaking for myself, I think if my extended family saw Qingming as being the cultural equivalent of how Canadians celebrate St. Patrick's Day... Or Valentine's Day, and Grandma isn't going to be inconsolable and fearful of what will happen to her in the afterlife if her living relatives don't help her out. Then I wouldn't go—not uh, to the gravesite. There might be a traditional family meal at someone's house instead. I would attend that. But uh, in this situation, it doesn't look like the family really cares a whole whole lot, religiously speaking, about this. But if this is a big deal to my family, and if I know that participation in this holiday is an affirmation to the older generation that the younger will care for them after they're gone, and if I know that there are living family members depending, they're depending on my burning fake money at their tomb and offering food at their graveside lest they go without in the afterlife, then following what Paul has laid out in First Corinthians, as long as certain preconditions were met, I would go to the gravesite. I would bend. I would flex. I would attend the ceremony. I would attend, but I wouldn't participate. And there may be things, as a Caucasian, Canadian, I'm not seeing here. I could be ignorant of some major aspect of this. I probably spent about three hours, I think, researching tomb-sweeping day. But I could be ignorant of something, so bear with me. But this is how I would approach things. Again, following the principles laid out in 1 Corinthians, Look at your handout again, those questions for Christians to consider. It's just a template. Take what you just did with baptism, apply it to this. Does my correctly calibrated conscience permit my presence? I would say yes. Does it permit my participation? No. My understanding of Qingming would align it with objective idolatry. It's a pagan religious ritual. Do I have the right to be present? May I bend or flex? I must not violate my conscience nor the word of God. And on this matter of tomb sweeping, you may believe, yes, my conscience is correctly calibrated. I'm not being legalistic. This ceremony is an attack, is a denial of the hope of the resurrection. I can have no part in this as much as I love my family and respect the memory of my dead relatives and... Brother, sister, that's fine. No member of this church can look down on you for such a stance. We all do what we do for the glory of God, and before our own master we stand or fall. But other Christians may adopt a different approach. I I know Christians here do adopt a different approach. Next question. What is the nature of the act? Brothers and sisters, we're in the realm of communing with, of interacting with, Departed spirits. Food is laid out in front of the headstone as an offering to the spirits of the deceased. Prayers are offered either to or for the dead. We're in verse 14 through 22 territory here. How does my neighbor view the act? Or more to the point, what does my unbelieving grandma think is going on? What does my unbelieving father think? think is going on here because they need to know the truth they need to be warned my family needs to be pointed to jesus christ the gospel and the hope of the resurrection how is it beneficial how is it constructive to them that i the christian am present what is my motivation in being there is it Be all things to all people that you may win some for the gospel? Is it that I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of others, particularly their eternal good? Am I doing all strategically for God's glory or am I compromising on my Christian beliefs? Is my conscience howling? Am I there only because my grandmother or my father would have a fit if I weren't? It's part of my familial obligation, so I'm attending out of duty without giving sufficient consideration to the false, damning beliefs of my loved ones. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that I'm Chinese, and my family is all about Qingming. Here's what I would do. I would tell them, in a polite manner, not in a dismissive or in a condescending way, that I cannot be part of this religious ritual. I'm a Christian. I would speak to them of biblical truth and counterpose it with what they believe. In all of this, I'd be seeking to point them to the finished work of Jesus Christ and the hope of the resurrection. I would also make it clear that I don't see myself in any way participating in this religious ceremony. And I would also explain my motivations and actions in attending the ceremony so that no one thinks I'm playing fast and loose with what Christians believe the Bible teaches. Also, on a practical side, remember how with the Roman Catholic baptism, it was my baptismal gift that was the best? On a practical side, I'd make a note of the locations of my ancestors' resting places, such as lot numbers, level numbers, unit numbers, however it is, this shows that I'm not just simply tagging along, but I am equally serious about remembering my ancestors. If needed, I would bring along towels and wet tissues and other suitable tools to clean up the graves and their surroundings. I'd bring along drinks, hand sanitizers, foldable chairs, or handheld fans for family members i would chat with my family about the life stories of our ancestors and share them with the next generation i might put together a family tree and frame it something nice something that costs a bit of money right and maybe i present it to our grandma at a family dinner and throughout the year i'd go to the grave to clean things up and lay fresh flowers hey where do these fresh flowers come from oh John the Christian brought them here the other week. He comes multiple times a year to keep things tidy. So, do you see? Do you see? I, I think that would show my family that I respect our deceased relatives, that I honor the memory of the dead. Am I participating in a sinful act? No. I'm not participating in anything explicitly unbiblical. I'm not burning money. I'm not offering food to departed spirits. I'm not. Praying to or for deceased relatives. I know that each family member comes to the front of the headstone and bows three times, but is bowing like that in any sense more than just showing honor to the dead, respecting their memory? Uh, I think it's fine. You know, every culture has a way of showing honor to the dead. It's not unbiblical. Every culture shows honor to the dead. Am I aware of the unbeliever's conscience? Do they believe that by my participating or being present, I'm doing something unchristian or unbiblical? No, I've made that plain to them. They know where I stand. They know I'm a Christian and that my hope is in the resurrection on the final day when Jesus returns. I would not go unless that was made very clear. Everybody would have to know that. Everybody. I may have to send out a group email. I don't know. I wouldn't go unless everybody knew it. Do you see by doing all this, by bending and flexing as much as God's word allows, all the while explaining things in love, aware of the other's misinformed conscience, I keep those channels of relationship open with my unbelieving family. Though I am free and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible to the Jews. I became like a Jew to win the Jews to those under the law. I became like one under the law so that I though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law to those not having the law. I became like one not having the law though. I am not free from God's law but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those, not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Christian, do all strategically for God's glory by seeking your neighbor's good, their eternal good. Amen. Amen.